Welcome to Educated Conjecture, an Ipsos podcast that combines what the public thinks with what the experts think. In each episode, Ipsos's Mike College and Sean Simpson join an informed guest to examine a current or emerging issue. They discuss what is happening today, think ahead about the future impact, both the good and the bad, and reflect on what steps might need to be taken to generate a better outcome for tomorrow. In this episode, Mike and Sean are joined by Kevin Krigger, President of TREB, the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board, and broker and team leader with Johnston and Daniel Royal LePage. Working from home during COVID has resulted in many Torontonians reevaluating their housing choices, both in and outside the GTA. We discuss the impact of the pandemic on renting and buying, which groups have been the most mobile, and what new or improved policies could help remove barriers to housing affordability. And now, on to the episode. Today, we are uh, pleased and honoured to have Kevin Krigger, who is the president of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board, with us. He is our, our guest for today. He is, uh, in addition to being the president of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board, which we'll call TREB here on out, uh, he's also a broker and team leader with uh, Johnston and Daniel Royal LePage. He's a lifelong uh, resident of the city of Toronto, and I, I think you'll uh, definitely hear the um, uh, the passion that he has for, for his city as we as we go through the interview today so uh kevin welcome and thanks for joining us thanks so much for the invitation you know i think what everybody's been wanting to know over the last year or so but what explains the unbelievable flurry of activity that we've seen in the gta housing market over the last year well i think as we've all been at home probably more than we have in our lifetimes we you know really have evaluated our current sort of living situation so, you know, many people had the distractions of travel, um, a lot of times sort of, you know, heading to and from the office. And, you know, when you've really spent time in your space, you're looking at it from a very, very different perspective. So a lot of clients, you know, evaluated what was really important to them and decided now is the time to, you know, upsize, downsize, um, change location or, you know, change housing type from condo to house or vice versa. And uh, I know there's been a lot of, or at least there was speculation at the start of of, uh, of the activity that we would see a mass exodus from from uh, from the cities. People were going to be leaving the the, the GTA in in droves. Did you did you see that? Is has that been happening, or are people just moving a little bit further from downtowns? Help me help me understand whether or not you know there's all kinds of vacancies in in Toronto that weren't there before. I think where we saw. The largest level of movement was those who were in a situation to more easily pick up and go. So people who were renting, for example, uh, we definitely saw a flatlining of rental demand and we saw the suburbs really pick up in terms of rental rates. A lot of it was if you're in a rental, you're committing to, you know, a year outside of the core and, you know, with question marks around how soon people were going to be back in the office and what that was going to look like in terms of remote opportunities. I think those who were renters had the lowest barrier to make movement. Uh, they weren't paying land transfer tax. They weren't, you know, paying the associated fees of transactions. So I certainly saw a number of people in that segment of the market look at opportunities outside of the core. For a lot of others, 
we certainly had clients who considered a move to an out-of-town location. We had a lot of clients who, you know, seriously looked at sort of secondary or vacation property for the first time. Um, cottage country obviously has seen a massive influx of demand with, you know, restrictions on travel and people spending more time locally than they arguably ever have before. But I didn't see a huge movement of people out of Toronto. It still really is an amazing place to live, um, although very different during COVID, obviously. Uh, but I think people who have a foothold in the market here really maintained that. Um, it was certainly an opportunity for those who were priced out of the city, now having some flexibility to work a little further afield. And instead of being renters, looking at buying opportunities. So I would say that sort of entrant to the buyer market and the renter were probably the two most prone to move out of the core. So downtowns aren't dead? Most definitely not. I'm located downtown as we speak, and it's bustling. <laughs> That's great. That's great to hear. Um, I, you mentioned early on it was a you know a little bit of a reevaluation sort of when the pandemic hit about you know some people had larger because they were you know either kids coming home or they were spending more time at home or they needed an office. Um, and then you said you know some people uh, and I, I agree 100 percent those who who weren't attached who were renters or less attached were able to move quicker or do it. Are we, you know, we talked about this before the podcast, are we a little bit uh, calm after the storm of pan pan pandemic, but about to be potentially calm before the storm? Those people who are reevaluating, you know, and we're anchored are, are still with the pandemic going on with work from home happening. The, the world has permanently changed, it seems. And so so maybe we're in for a long stretch. And I just wonder what your thoughts on on sort of is that reevaluation multi-year from here on in potentially? Well, I think, you know, the longer restrictions occur and the more time people spend at home, the greater the likelihood for reevaluation. In addition to that, I think we obviously have become a global city. And the interesting part from a personal perspective is I've had more inquiries from buyers outside of Toronto, outside of Canada, who, you know, have reached out to learn more about the market, understand sort of yeah. what opportunities exist. And I think as restrictions ease and borders open, Canada has always been a safe haven. Toronto has a unique positioning in Canada based on, you know, the number of corporate head offices, the level of multiculturalism, um, the generally safe environment. So I, I think we're going to see our sort of focus on a global scale, open up more as well. I, I think that's a very interesting point. And I, and I, the one thing that, uh, you know, not to draw the federal election into it, but all of the parties, while they may have differences on on the type of immigration we have in the country, um, all of them seem squarely behind more immigration. Most and definitely. so I, I think you'll see we're going to have to, for pure growth reasons, just nationally, um, we will up our number of immigrants into the country. And I think you're right, Toronto's the magnet for uh, almost everybody on, on the outside looking into Canada to say that's my that's my first stop of, uh, of call to see if I can be there. So, Well, definitely. And I think this is sort of an ideal opportunity for all political parties to get behind a strategy of supply. So pretty much all of the discussion and as politically favorable as it may be at the various times has really been on 
demand dynamics and sort of artificially suppressing demand. If, you know, a specific party is really looking to make a difference and really govern, focusing on supply and bringing supply to market is really the only fundamental change that can occur to bolster affordability. And if affordability really is something that these politicians are actually concerned about, we will definitely see something in someone's platform around expanded supply. What's your what's your wish list there, Gavin? I mean, maybe the federal government is 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 further removed from uh, you know local regulatory affairs, but if if you could see uh, the the federal parties uh, come out with uh, with policies that you think help to address uh, the long term issue of affordability and of housing in Canada, what, what what would it be? What would you what would you have them put in their platform? Well, there's certainly a number of tools and a number of encouragements. So infrastructure investments tied to, you know, modernizing local planning, I think is really important. There's been massive investments in infrastructure and, you know, looking at how well those investments have been leveraged, you know, development in Toronto takes an inordinate amount of time and there are a whole bunch of reasons behind it. Additionally, all of the associated costs from all levels of government. Um, are extensive and to bring new properties to market, a huge amount of that sale price is associated taxes, fees, levies, and all levels of government need to work collectively to sort of cut down those barriers. You know, in Toronto specifically, which is obviously a huge draw for citizens and new immigrants, we have two land transfer taxes. It's a, a barrier that's incredibly challenging for those looking to get into the market. And the challenge is the associated rebates have not kept up with the rate of price increases. So the buying power of a first time home buyer today is paltry compared to what it was 10 years ago. It's a tough market if you're, if you're a first time buyer, particularly if you're not you know, a first time buyer happens to be a lawyer. Uh, like if you're almost, you know, I pick lawyers, but it, you know, if you're not in a professional uh, uh, position, other than land transfer tax, what what's the possibility for someone who's young today trying to get into Toronto? I mean, other than a tiny condo, is there any glimpse of light on the horizon for them? Well, I think, you know, looking at the economics, the more supply in the market, you know, there's a moderation of pricing that happens. Yeah. At a- point. The challenge is with the approvals that are required, the you know financing requirements, and all of the associated fees on new development, that's really where I think government can make the largest impact in you know cutting red tape and you know providing some form of incentive um, to those looking to build purpose-built rentals, condominiums, a whole range of housing stock. Yeah. Even then, we're a couple years away. Better than decades. Better and than decades, yeah. That's, that's really been the challenge is the, the longer it takes for someone to fundamentally address the supply challenges, we're just sort of kicking the can further and further down the line with no real successes today. Are the, the policies in place currently to help first-time home buyers? 
uh, like you know an exemption at least it's, it's not a full exemption but partial exemption land transfer taxes uh, the RSP withdrawal program at uh, thirty-five thousand um, dollars, and other you know programs that are that are in pay in place. Some of them actually quite quite new. The the was the CMHC shared equity thing. Are those are those effective? Are those enough, or are they also kind of lagging behind uh, price growth? And it's just sort of band-aid solutions or whatever that aren't that aren't doing enough to help first-time home buyers realize their dreams. It's very much market dependent. So, you know, these are programs spread across many, many markets that fundamentally are at very, very different price levels. So, you know, buying power in Toronto versus buying power in Timmins are very, very different. Um, but, you know, the buyers ultimately are sort of working from similar programs. So that's where I think market specific or region specific programs probably would go much further in sort of achieving the goal of home ownership for a larger population. Now, if, if we're talking about prices, you know, obviously there's been a significant amount of price growth uh, in, in the GTA, in cottage country. Uh, I live in, in, in Kitchener. There's, there's been a significant growth here. So it's, it's not a big city, small city, urban, rural thing. It's pretty well, pretty well everywhere. Um, do, do you believe that prices have, have risen too quickly or, uh, or is it healthy? Is it just, uh, a, you know, show that uh, real estate is a good long-term investment? Fundamentally, my belief is real estate is a great long-term investment. And I think as long as people are buying prudently. So the stress test obviously is a factor in that and that there's sort of a hedge against the change in rates. Um, the level of qualification, generally speaking, in Canada is quite high compared to many other countries. So I think from a, a fundamentals standpoint, um, you know, borrowers are borrowing at a level that makes sense based on their individual financial circumstances. So I think from that perspective, we have a strong foundation to work from. The reality is, and it's sort of an old adage, but you know, they're not making any more land. So part of the challenge is we are a growing population. Toronto specifically is obviously a city that is getting a larger and larger global reputation and perspective. And, you know, if you spoke to someone in a major U.S. city a number of years ago and suggested that, you know, their prices were unaffordable then, they're certainly not more affordable now. Yeah, it seems to have been, uh, you know, that the, the story that uh, I, I keep waiting for the market to, to, to come back to me, but it, it, it's never been a bad investment in a weird way. Um, it set aside the U.S. in 2008, 2009. Um, you, you mentioned about, uh, you know, they're not making any more land. Um, it, what are your thoughts on sort of in, in Toronto being the biggest urban area, urban areas and climate change? I mean, they, you know, the, the, the path towards climate change would seem to be <laughs> uh, more dense urban populations with public transit and people walking to places. And yet, despite the fact that we've had a lot of activity in Toronto, we have seen growth in the suburbs and we have seen, particularly in Ontario, a ripple out, which which may lead us to more, now you're right, work from home, but you know, I think we're likely to see more people buying cars because I still have to commute. Um, are there, are your, your thoughts on sort of infills, laneway suites, those kind of things, basements. Uh, I, is that something that, uh, that that you're concerned about or, or think that they need to be see some changes on? Well, I think intensification 
specifically around transit corridors is incredibly important. The infrastructure is there. Um, with the new Eglinton LRT, it's been a, a massive, the largest in my lifetime, um, investment in transit infrastructure in the GTA. And I think really maximizing that opportunity is important. If you look at buildings that are going up today, we're never going to be able to add to those buildings. So when a project comes to the city for approval and, you know, it's politically advantageous to push for lower densities because that's what residents are concerned about. Um, you know, this whole not in my backyard yeah. approach. You know, I think there's a very different perspective of a politician versus a statesman. I think if you're really looking at what is in the best interests of the city long term, you know, I, I'm not talking about massive towers on every corner, but there's areas of the city that call for higher density. There's areas of the city that call for unique opportunities like laneway houses, garden suites, and really looking at those opportunities. And additionally, when people are converting properties from single family homes to triplexes, for example, um, I would probably shock most people to know that even in a single house, converting a semi-detached three-story into three units triggers development charges. You know, these are, again, barriers to small-scale infill development that addresses, in very short order, some element of the supply challenges we have. Yeah, well, supply challenges and climate change. I mean, it's interesting, the, 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 the strongest proponents of um, the environmental movement and reducing carbon tend to be in the urban cores, and you're right on the NIMBY thing. Um, they, I think they're there until such time as suddenly, you know, we're going to put infill houses in, in, in my neighborhood. And then like, well, that's not exactly what I meant by addressing the climate change challenge. Um, yes. so I, that's, that's great to hear. And I, and I, that I think it's, you're, you're bang on. You mentioned the LRT and the biggest investment in, in your lifetime. Are you worried at all that, um, with the push to the suburbs and cottage country that, that you might lose out on the next big one because there'll be other priorities for government or it'll be harder to get the next big one, I guess. To be honest, no. I think if you look at the city and sort of what growth is projected, Toronto's never going to have an oversupply of transit infrastructure. Um, not, not in my lifetime and probably not in multiple lifetimes after mine. So excellent point. I, I think part of you know that discussion is there was a long period of no investment. Mm -hmm. So the investments that are being made today probably could have been made decades before. So we're on the path to catching up, but we're certainly not on the path to exceeding what's necessary and planning for the future. For definitely. Uh, yeah, I was interested in the, in the the comments you made about uh, you know infill. I, I remember being at a Trev event a couple of years ago, and Frank Clayton was was sharing some interesting stats, including I think it's something like or twenty percent of of Torontonians live on eighty percent of the land or something. You know, it gives you a sense of the you know how many people are overhoused, having multiple bedrooms per person in these single detached homes. 
And one of the things that he was advocating for at the time, he says, if you give everybody in Toronto 50,000 bucks to build a secondary suite for long-term rental, that would, you know, essentially, uh, you know, create X many hundred thousand rental suites that, that people could, could, could use and we'd, 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 we'd fix our problem. I don't know if it's, if it's that simple, but certainly uh, it, it's probably a, um, a challenge or, or a problem that, that requires some, some bold thinking. I think definitely it does. And if you look at the sort of types of development that are occurring and where sort of people run into challenges, I, for example, bought an investment property that was effectively a rooming house and needed substantial renovation. I brought in an architect, applied to the city, and lo and behold, $40,000 in development charges effectively to put in a basement suite along with two additional suites. And, you know, doing the math, it was going to be a long time before that was going to pay off. Right. So when you disincentivize homeowners and property owners from sort of maximizing the potential of properties, you know, that's now never going to be converted into three suites. And, and this is the challenge. And it's the same with buildings. You know, if the building ultimately goes in for approval at 15 stories and gets knocked down to 10, those five stories are never coming back. So these are all sort of lost opportunities. Uh, as a researcher, has a survey ever been done to homeowners to see how many want to convert and what the what it would do to supply? I uh, think it's an interesting conversation, most definitely. That's not a pitch for work, by the way. I just <laughs> <laughs> shameless, Mike, shameless. <laughs> On the podcast, no less. Um, I, I love the, the housing discussion um, in part because it, um, and I don't think people outside of people who do what we do necessarily think about this, but it it touches on so many other files. We, you know, it touches on climate change. Um, so I'm going to bring in another one, the, the aging population. I mean, for the longest time, you know, we we um, we bought homes, we got old, we downsized. Um, um, and I, it seems to me that uh, just anecdotally, the more people are saying, um, nope, that's not my plan anymore. I think I'm going to stay right where I am. I've worked hard to get here. And to Sean's point, you know, I may have two extra bedrooms because the kids aren't home. But you know what? I like my neighborhood. I've built my roots. And, and, and maybe there's no place smaller to go to in the community anymore. Um, maybe we're better off as we get older. But do you see any evidence that um, that old adage of downsizing is uh, is uh not no longer the case anymore. I think there's different perspectives. We certainly have seen a number of clients right size. So not necessarily downsizing in dollars. I think, you know, my parents and grandparents generation, you sort of sold the larger home, cashed equity out of the market and went into a smaller property, whether that be, you know, condo or smaller house. And that was sort of the natural progression of things. I think now people are looking more at lifestyle changes. You know, you have people who are much more active in terms of travel um, at, you know, much more advanced age. Um, and those people want, you know, the lock and go opportunity of a condo. So we've certainly seen that. Interestingly, going in many cases from a large home to a large condo, um, there's actually, in some cases, the requirement to bring additional cash to the table to close the transaction. 
the luxury sector, certainly on the condo side, has been robust. But also looking at some people who, for example, want to downsize within a neighborhood from a two-story to a bungalow. When you look at the cost difference in the housing, you know, there's definitely a, a savings. But then when you look at the transactional costs, so land transfer tax, for example, and double land transfer tax in Toronto, it's a fee that they don't really see any value in. So that, in many conversations, ends up being a barrier to them making that downsize move or instead of doing what may be two downsizes, so from a larger house to a smaller house to an eventual condo, they'll stay much longer in the larger house and go directly to the condo because from a financial perspective, they're eating away equity with each move Mm -hmm. based on the associated fees. So I definitely in my practice have seen that and seen clients who have sort of delayed what would have been a natural progression for much longer than intended to limit those associated costs. I think I think the other I think you're right. And I think the other thing you'll see is in, um, with what's happened with long term care through the pandemic. Um, one of our surveys, and I'm probably going to misquote the number, I think it was six in 10 boomers who said, I'll do everything I can to stay out of long-term care going forward, you know. Um, so you might find that um, they make the the first move down and then say, now I'm really going to stick where I am um, uh, for as long as possible, um, bringing home care in, do those kind of things. Um, and no doubt that that reluctance to move uh, is contributing to supply issues because uh, boomers are, you know, maybe staying in their three or four bedroom home instead of selling it to a young growing growing family uh, who could who could use the space uh, more more efficiently, I guess. Most definitely. Yeah. Um, have you had I mean, does it concern you or maybe some recent clients who have purchased you know, buying after significant growth in the market? Are they are you are they worried about uh, the potential for a, a price correction, or do you feel that the underlying fundamentals are so strong that the chance of that happening is, is negligible? Uh, from a personal perspective, I've always suggested to clients that transacting in the same market is key, uh, and no one really has the crystal ball for market timing. So provided you're buying and selling in the same market, you're trading in the same circumstance. Personally speaking, I don't see any rationale for price depreciation. I think if anything, demand remains incredibly strong. But the key always is getting good advice from an experienced professional. And despite this incredibly buoyant market we've seen, there have certainly been some outliers in terms of prices paid for various properties. And I think as long as you're buying based on fundamental values in the market and you're getting good advice around, you know, value in your unique and personal circumstance. I think real estate is still an incredibly strong investment in the city um, and one I'm very comfortable with. And and, and that demand has existed without immigration. Exactly. It's been a a wholly, in my opinion, a wholly domestic market, which we've had a lot of discussion and conversation and certainly a lot of media buzz around you know, the the foreign buyer, but this is a market where it was local buyers and sellers that have, you know, fueled this market cycle. So it'll be very interesting to see what a wider global perspective brings to the market as, you know, restrictions ease and borders open. 
and their motivations, I think, are going to change. You know, the the flurry we had during the pandemic was um, driven by a little bit of panic and uncertainty. Um, you know, I, I, for some people, I need to get in before things change, and others were like, you know, what's going on? And and now we're settling into it, and it's an almost a new era. And some of the work we do around sort of general sentiment, consumer sentiment, citizen sentiment, we're actually more buoyant now than we were in 2018, prior to the pandemic. You could, it's hard to argue that things are 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 better in many ways, but our latest reference point is the bottom of the pandemic. Right, that scare, that concern, the 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 lockdowns. So we feel a lot better, and 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 I think you're right. I, I think when immigration kicks in, um, there are more signs for up than there are down, and particularly with the the demand challenges. It's um, are are you worried we end up with another rapid rise that 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 um, causes more more challenges on that end? Well, I think any level of rapid increase always creates concern. So from that end. More balance and moderation, I think, is always a positive from everyone's level of comfort. The reality is, and not to really harp on the supply concerns, but you know they haven't changed. And mm. if more people are arriving in Toronto, there aren't more homes being created instantaneously for them to occupy. So I think there is definitely potential for a further jump in values, just based on, again, heightened demand. Yeah, and it's such a huge issue. Again, back to you know, <laughs> to pull in other public policy issues, but just labor market challenges, right? You try to find uh, young workers in this market. Uh, one of the top things they say is, you know, um, affordable housing. Um, you know, I need to be able to live somewhere. Um, you know, this healthcare is concerned a little a real range of issues, but there, you know, there are issues aside from from what you can pay people, and aside from the opportunities of jobs that um, that really do. Uh, that potentially limit the growth um, of, of businesses. So. Kevin, has the the trajectory of the market over the last uh, six months or year or so, let's say just 2021, because 2020 was so unpredictable in, in so many ways, has the market this year unfolded the way that the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board had 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 thought it would? And I know Ipsos feeds into some of those predictions as well, but is it going pretty well as expected or have there been some surprises for you? I think it's performed even better than anticipated. So certainly the the number of transactions for sure early in the year. We're starting to get into what would be more typically the seasonality of the market. Um, And we've seen that over the last couple of months. There's been a lot of media reference to it. But, you know, looking at, I guess, a, a longer time horizon, it's typical. So we definitely saw a spike in demand earlier in the year. And I think as we move through summer and get into our fall market, we'll see a, a further increase in demand as well. So a, a, a sort of steady as she goes, uh, typical to to other years at, at this point. So that that pent up demand has been exercised, and now we're kind of more back into normal cycles. We are from a, a seasonal perspective, but again, with borders opening and a push on immigration. There definitely is the potential for substantially higher demand come the fall. There was a while where it seemed every time I pulled up the news, there was a something on the uh, the DIY movement, right? It was a, I'm going to do my own will, I'm going to do my own investments, I'm going to purchase my own house. It seems, and again anecdotally, that that's been been 
been pushed back a little bit. Is that is that true? There are more people at least relying on professionals, at least in the real. I know you can't speak for lawyers and the the financing, but on the real estate side. Well, I can speak for a number of sort of industries or service providers. Yeah. We interact with them on a regular basis. We have a, a number of friends and colleagues who work in the design business, um, interior designers, architects, who arguably have been busier than ever. Likewise, contractors, builders, um, are, and any skilled trade is in incredibly short supply. And I think, again, it comes down to using professionals. So these are massive investments in many cases, um, hugely impactful in our day-to-day lives. There's nothing sort of more impactful than our own home. So I think as with all things, you know, professionals have been very active and very engaged as there's been a huge focus on housing. And realtors certainly have been no different. It almost seems to be in a reemergence of professionalism on a number of things. Like, let get an expert to do your your work and uh, solve some of your future hassles. So, and I think in times of especially any level of uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, when you're sort of going into a largely uncharted path, that's when the valuable insight of an experienced professional is key. Yeah, and things are much more complex today than they were, right? Um, um, whether it's financing or home heating units, right? I mean, that the, um, the, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing simple anymore. So, no, just true. So, just to, to to follow up on this, by extension, then, do you think that there is that there are going to be more people coming back to realtors who have maybe experienced or tried uh, selling or buying on their own or maybe using a, a different uh, avenue like Purple Bricks or some other. If, if people now are going back to professionals for renovations, will they return back to the professionals for the buying and the selling of their homes? Well, I, th- I think the unique element of real estate is the diversity of business models that exist, the diversity of business focus, business experience. With my clients, you know, I've had long-term advisory relationships with them. And I feel that I add value to the transactions that I'm involved in, and, and thankfully so do they. I think as a profession, it's really the sort of advice, guidance, and largely experience that really makes the difference in the client experience and the client's ultimate ultimate long-term success. So I think as with all things, professionals provide value and you know the vast majority of consumers have worked with realtors for that very reason. Is there anything else that uh, isn't getting enough attention that you think everybody that all the millions of people who listen to this podcast should be uh, should be aware of Kevin? <laughs> Supply, supply, supply. supply, supply. Said it enough, you'll be hearing it a lot this year. I yeah. think you know, long-term solutions really are the solutions we need, as opposed to sort of shorter-term band-aid options. What's the downside, Kevin, if we don't get our act together on supply? Let's say we end up with a series of challenges that don't allow federal, provincial, municipal politicians to focus on the things that you're talking about. What happens to us if if we just end up with short supply for the next decade? I think the the vibrancy of cities really is determined by the population that lives there. And in terms of 
employment opportunities, educational opportunities, interactions with cultural institutions, you know, those are sort of key elements of city life. I think as, you know, neighbors and, you know, colleagues and friends, having the ability to live in close proximity to, you know, where we socialize, where we live and work really builds the fabric of Toronto. Toronto is an incredible city. It's been where I've lived my entire life. I have traveled extensively and I've worked abroad as well. It's a city that really offers so much to so many people, but we've been behind in so many ways. Um, transit infrastructure obviously was a key element. You know, the the commute, if anyone's done the, the east-west sort of Gardner uh, QEW route, um, you know, it's torturous. Oh, yeah. So I think the more opportunities we have for people to live in the city, the greater the city becomes. And I think really by not dealing with these supply issues a decade or two decades from now, Toronto won't have reached its full potential. Excellent. There's a, there's a wake up call. Yeah, I will, uh, I will think of everything that you've said today, Kevin, as I drive my son to Ryerson in a couple of weeks, <laughs> move into downtown condo. Beautiful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Yes, Kevin, thank you for joining, uh, for joining us today. And, uh, Maybe next year when the markets are, are looking a little different, we'll have you back on and, uh, and, and see where things are headed then. I would love to. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Educated Conjecture. Follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of Public Opinion and Informed Insights. If you have a topic you'd like to see covered on an upcoming episode, please send us an email at publicaffairs at ipsos.com. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-A-F-F-A-I-R-S at ipsos, I-P-S-O-S dot com.